The following podcast may be unsuitable for children or more sensitive listeners and may contain explicit language. The Paper Machete, y'all! A weekly live magazine issue date October 11th, 2014. You are at a live magazine. You're going to hear comedians, journalists, and orators talking about current events, pop culture, and American manners. You are at a weekly salon in a Chicago saloon. My name is Christopher. I am your editor-in-chief, go-go boy, cabaret cabbie, show business shaman, impish impresario, and masters-less master of ceremonies table of contents this week what do the supreme court's decision on same-sex marriage the first ever successful womb transplant and the bill Maher islam debate dust up all have in common yes 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 all of these topics have spent the week shoved up the asses of chicago's best writer performers and today we will fart up a socio-political storm and your faces will be rocked off by our visiting guest from Nashville, Daniel Ellsworth in the Great Lakes. <laughs> Masthead Roll Call, Katie Kershaw, Here. Erica Price, J.C. Eva Lotus, Here. Daniel Ellsworth in the Great Lakes, each and every one a Scientologist. As usual, the drinks will be poured into stomachs by you, our loyal audience of almost late bloomers, cheap beer consumers, early adopters, dialogue prompters, clever assholes, chicks with brass balls, daytime drinkers, culture vultures, dreamers, schemers, screamers, nice, decent church people, and all the members of the Obama administration who are listening today live via wiretap. If you can hear my voice, then ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, hipsters and hopheads, writers of op-eds, Mandama and Unheran and Kinfolk, this live magazine is officially live, and we are all about to read it together. Now it's time for the Week in Medical News, here to tell you about the latest developments in womb transplants and lab-grown penises is a very sophisticated adult who's the only person in Chicago I would trust to talk about this topic. One of my favorite writers in town. Welcome back to the Green Mill. Our own Erica Price is back with us. So there are two major takeaways from medical news this week. First, science has bestowed humanity with nearly godlike powers to create life and defy biological limits. And second, those godlike powers are mostly gonna be reserved for women because men are headed for irrelevancy and extinction. <laughs> Let's start with the creation of life. Pregnancy has always been a miraculous, revolting, swollen, puffy-faced, leaky-nippled, stretch-marked, labia-tearing, the hospital bed on accident kind of process. <laughs> But, it is. but this week, uh, doctors at the University of Gothenburg reported that they managed to make gestation just a little bit more disgusting using a little technique called a womb transplant. On Sunday, a woman in Sweden experienced the first ever live birth via a transplanted uterus. The patient was a 36-year-old woman who was born without a womb due to a genetic disorder. And in 2012, she was one of nine experimental patients to be transplanted with a gently used Easy Bake Baby oven. <laughs> and this week, she was the first of those nine to successfully carry a child to term. Imagine the lives of these women. So they lived without period cramps and stained underwear for decades because of their genetic disorder. 
Never needing to worry about birth control, their insides a quiet, spacious palace devoid of blood clots and babies. So lucky. Then, then one day, they elected to have their lower abdomen slit open and some other lady's fleshy baby satchel stuffed inside them. For months, they had to take aggressive anti-rejection drugs to keep their bodies from attacking their new fetus bags. And then every month, menstrual blood began coursing out of their once pristine, unimpeachable vaginas. And then one lucky patient, this woman, got to swell up like a seed pod and have her vagina burst apart by some infant. It's a glorious process and clearly less trouble than filling out adoption paperwork. Now, most of the women in this study received their transplant uteruses from relatives. However, the woman who gave birth this week got her uterus from a 61-year-old family friend who had experienced menopause seven years prior. This should send a clear message to all those high-strung 35-year-old women out there who have bought the lie of the biological clock and are busy settling down with the first mediocre piece of dick they can find. <laughs> while, while striving to build a career, get pregnant, make some Pinterest-worthy crafts, and have it all. <laughs> and that message is, Calm down. You are not too old to have a child. If some 61-year-old post-menopausal, presumably dusty-ass cooter can, can cook up a perfectly healthy fetus, you probably have nothing to worry about. But it's not just the biological clock that's been thwarted by science this week. We can all stop settling for mediocre dick, too, because penises can now be grown in the laboratory. <laughs> Anthony Atala, a urologist at Wake Forest University, has long been obsessed with building a better <laughs> stick. In 2008, his research team grew fully functional rabbit penises and transplanted them onto live rabbits, successfully resulting in copulation and pregnancy. But then Dr. Atala set his sights about three inches higher, or three feet higher, I'm sorry, nuzzled, <laughs> nuzzled right in the crotch of the homo sapien male. And after years of experimentation, he and his colleagues announced this week that they have grown complete human dicks from scratch. And these test tube penises contain the actual DNA of the intended recipient, so there's no risk of the body rejecting it. Atala's penis production method is something of a marvel. It begins with a donor penis, which remember is a dick cut off of a dead body. <laughs> The dick is then soaked in an enzyme detergent, which eats away at all of the cells and the DNA of the original penis owner. This leaves behind a translucent ghost penis. A phallic structure without any cells in it. Atala calls it a scaffold, but really it's more like one of those penis-shaped cake pans for bachelorette parties. 
The cake pan is then filled with the cells of the recipient. First, the patient's muscle cells are poured in, then the spongy tissue that makes erections possible, and finally, the patient's skin cells. So it's a layer cake. <laughs> and, and the result is a fully functional, full-sized, healthy, disembodied living penis. The research team at Wake Forest has grown about half a dozen dongs at this point. Um, and right now they are testing all of those penises for flexibility, durability, and safety. Which means there are actual scientists in the world right now whose job it is to stretch, twist, tug, pull, and squash a bunch of disembodied dicks. And there's one researcher whose job is to simulate erections by filling the dicks with fluid to make sure they don't pop like Dollar General condoms. <laughs> Atala says his dicks will be ready for transplantation within the next five years. Lab-grown dicks could vastly improve the lives of transgender men and bring peace to dudes who have lost their penises to cancer, injury, or Lorena Bobadish <laughs> but someday, being able to sprout dicks from scratch may be essential to humanity's survival. That's because climate change is apparently leading to a sharp decline in male births. In a report in the Fertile and Sterile Health Journal this week, Japanese scientists revealed that extreme temperatures are closely linked with the deaths of male fetuses. Researchers took climate change data from the last five decades and plotted it against the birth rate data and demonstrated that whenever it's extremely cold or extremely hot out, there's a sharp decline in the number of male births. Now, doctors have known for decades that the XY chromosome pair is a lot more fragile than the double X. Male fetuses suffer from a higher miscarriage rate and are more sensitive to stress and have weaker immune systems. Nature is normally able to balance this out, but throw climate change into the mix and the male birth rate may actually um, have a significant decline. It's impossible to know right now how serious the long-term effects will be, but as temperatures rise and natural disasters increase, we will definitely be left with an increasingly female world. And this is at a time when men are already falling behind women in educational achievement and employment rate. So the end of men may be nigh, but science has given us plenty of ways to create life without the use of the XY chromosome. And most of them are just as disgusting as the old-fashioned way. Thank you. Erica Price is her name. This week on Chewing the Fat, it's the Reinvention episode. I'm Louisa Chu. And I'm Monica Eng. We talked to Greg Hall, founder of Virtue Cider. Then parachute chef and owner Beverly Kim and chef Chrissy Camba of the upcoming Maddie's Dumpling House. Listen to new episodes of our food podcast each Thursday at wbez.org slash chewing the fat.
Now we turn our thoughts to politics. Of course, with this week's Supreme Court decision, gay marriage was legalized in fully 10 more American states. It's a big deal. 60% of the country can now participate in same-sex marriage legally. Uh, we're very excited about it. Uh, however, at the Paper Machete, we also feel a uh, cultural obligation to present counterpoints. Uh, here, from the National Organization of Marriage, the institution that promotes same-sex marriage, is Miss Tam McDonald. Welcome, Tam, to the Paper Machete. Hello, Tam. Let us pray. <laughs> Father, I want to thank you for bringing all of us beautiful heterosexual beings together today to celebrate and discuss marriage the way you intended between one man and one woman. If there are any people out there today that are not blessed to be in a traditional union, I ask that they hear this message. I ask you to strengthen the work of the National Organization of Marriage, one million moms in the campaign of every Republican senator. In your precious son's name, I pray. Amen. Good afternoon, I am Tam McDonald, and I am a soldier and a public relations assistant <laughs> in what appears to be a losing battle, the battle for traditional marriage. I am not married myself, because all the good ones have been lost to the gay mafia. <laughs> So normally I stand alongside the only other single gal in the National Organization for Marriage, my roommate, Barb. Barb couldn't be here today because she's holding an impromptu rally at Steamworks in Boys Town. What a brave soldier. May God be with her. Now, I'm sure you've all heard about this historically horrible decision that our Supreme Court gave this Monday when the liberal bench declared that people in Indiana, Oklahoma, Utah, Virginia, and Wisconsin can now get gay married. And of course, they wasted no time. Gays and lesbian couples started getting married in a matter of hours. Even as I say those words now, I feel our nation's foundation crumbling beneath my very feet. Now this decision upped the number of godless states to 28 and the number could keep growing to 30, maybe all of them. According to the Williams Institute at the University of California in Los Angeles, nearly two thirds of all gay couples can now ruin marriage in their home states. I remember Barb turned to me with tears streaming down her supple rosy cheeks and said, the end times are here, Tam. But thankfully, Republican heartthrob Ted Cruz, <laughs> who called the decision tragic and indefensible, has vowed to introduce a constitutional amendment to ban the government or the courts from overturning marriage laws passed by the states. Ha-ha. <laughs> now, if it weren't for Cruz, people could marry whatever they wanted. You know, just as Bill O'Reilly warned us in 2004, this is gonna be a totally different country than it is right now. Laws that we think are set in stone are gonna evaporate, man. We'll be able to marry a goat. You mark my words, because all of us in this room and all of us at the National Organization of Marriage know that homosexuality is a gateway drug to bestiality. <laughs> now, some of you may be thinking gays 
They seem so nice. They're just like us. Heck, I watched Mitchell and Cam get married. But you better wake up, America, because your freedoms are being stripped away from you. Have you turned on the TV lately? It's not as simple as just avoiding Will and Grace and all of Bravo, because now, now they have 32 out of 813 primetime broadcast scripted series regulars identifying as LGBT. And that doesn't even include Amazon's smash hit Transparent, which boasts 15 trans actors in speaking roles in the very first season. Can you hear that? It's the sound of the Constitution being ripped by Jill Soloway and Gingy Cohen. Now, if you need me, I will not be watching those shows. I'll be snuggled up to Barb with my Pitbull Rescue, marathoning Seventh Heaven. No, I, 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 I don't mean snuggling. We don't snuggle, okay? Like, I'm... We'll be, enjoying, uh, we'll be enjoying a good meal together in a respectable distance apart. So we live in a two-bedroom condo. It's a two-bedroom condo. One only has a twin bed, I know, but that's my room. It's, we sleep in separate beds. Now, Barb and I, along with the National Organization for Marriage, put together a list of 77 non-religious talking points that support traditional marriage. And I want to leave you today with three of the best talking points that we have so you can be fully prepared next time you're forced face-to-face -face with gay marriage. Number one, man-woman marriage allows children access to their genetic, cultural, and social heritage. I'll never forget when my mother set me down to discuss a rich and disease-filled genetic heritage that I have. <laughs> Now, doesn't Neil Patrick Harris's children deserve the same? Children need guidance in developing their sexual identities. Same-sex marriage makes it more difficult, if not legally forbidden. Because if your father describes the birds and the bees to you, it is absolutely child abuse. And lastly, my, my favorite talking point that Barb and I came up with while we were drinking our home, our homemade microbrew. <laughs> By the time the activists are finished, there will be nothing left of marriage but a government registry of friendships. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, how's about it for Miss Katie Kershaw? Is that girl's name? our thoughts to religion as I'm sure you know last week's debate on Bill Maher's HBO show Real Time over the topic of radical Islam caused quite the internet kerfuffle. Here with commentary welcome back behind the bar the paper machete zone JC Ava Lotus. The October 3rd episode of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher received a lot of media attention this week. What was supposed to be a panel discussion on Islam turned into something much more like 
a really awkward Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Mara creates an intentionally volatile panel. One episode in June, guests included a gay filmmaker, a former congressman who got caught texting pictures of his junk, and the former head of the Christian Coalition. The show is accustomed to fireworks. But even by Mars standards, the October 3rd panel was a bit awkward. The guests were New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, former chair of the Republican National Committee Michael Steele, atheist author Sam Harris, and Ben Affleck. <laughs> Marr kicked things off by introducing the topic of Islam, specifically the failure of liberals to criticize the lack of liberal principles in the Muslim world. Marr and Harris took turns agreeing with each other. Then Affleck, Affleck took sputtering, inarticulate exception, calling the statements of Marr and Harris gross and racist. And things went downhill from there. News outlets ate this up. The headlines making it sound like one of the epic moments in the history of public debate. Up there with Nikita Khrushchev and his shoe at the UN. But Affleck Harris wasn't so much Lincoln Douglas as it was that one Thanksgiving your uncle who didn't finish college made things weird for everybody by getting disproportionately upset about the glib intellectualism of your cousin who was in the first year of his master's program in cultural studies. <laughs> who won? Well, that depends on which echo chamber you choose for your news. HuffPo had a headline that read, Ben Affleck is right, Bill Maher is wrong. Bill O'Reilly said that Maher was right, a popular sentiment on Fox News this week. So let's look at what actually happened. The first two minutes of the whole thing kind of illustrate how it went down. Harris says liberals don't criticize the doctrine of Islam because they're afraid they'll be called bigots. Ben Affleck interrupts. Are you the person that understands the officially codified doctrine of Islam? Harris responds, I'm actually well-educated on this topic, which forces Affleck to try a different approach. Eventually, Affleck calls the argument racist, but Harris is ready for this. He has the perfect play drawn up. Ben, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas, Harris says. Of course we do, Affleck responds. No liberal doesn't want you to criticize bad ideas. Affleck has unwittingly granted a faulty premise, and Harris is able to complete his argument. Well, Islam at this moment is the motherlode of bad ideas. We're scarcely two minutes into a 10-minute segment, but we've already seen everything there is to see. <laughs> Harris's argument is specious, but he is skilled at rhetoric. Affleck has a valid argument, but he can't keep up with Harris's slippery language games. More stuff happens. Nick Kristoff and surprisingly Michael Steele make somewhat cogent arguments in support of Affleck, but everything unfolds in pretty much the way the first two minutes went down. Sam Harris is clever and facile. He anticipates strong counter-arguments and has answers ready. It's a slick package and it's really hard to pick it apart as it's unfolding. But analyzing the debate shows that Affleck was on to something, even if he lacked the skill to point out that Sam Harris deployed rhetoric masquerading as reason. At the start, Sam Harris speaks about the doctrine of Islam. Affleck rightly grabs onto this as a problem. There are 1.5 billion Muslims on six continents. There's no such thing remotely close to one Islamic doctrine. But Affleck asks the wrong question. Are you an expert? 
challenging Harris's knowledge with a yes-no question. Not a hard question for Sam Harris, who responds simply, I am actually well-educated on this topic. If this was poker, Harris has just called Affleck's bluff, correctly guessing that Daredevil is not about to quiz Harris on the Quran. <laughs> so Harris's claim to authority goes completely unchallenged. From here, Harris makes an argument that looks a lot like a hypothetical syllogism. As any member of your high school's debate team would have been happy to tell you if you weren't shunning them, A hypothetical syllogism is a common argument structure using if-then logic. If A, then B. If B, then C. A, therefore C. Harris starts off by stating that bad things are bad. Ben, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas. Not wanting to be caught on the wrong side of the heated good idea versus bad idea fight, Affleck agrees which allows Harris to complete a syllogism that goes something like this. Bad ideas are bad. Islam is the mother of bad ideas. Therefore, Islam is bad. In the moment, Affleck can't diagnose what Harris is doing. <laughs> Allowed to define his own terms and establish a premise, Sam Harris gives the appearance of a man using facts and logic to prove that Islam is dangerous, fundamentally opposed to the core beliefs of Western civilization. Call it the shock and awe approach to debate about religion. So who won? As anyone who's been there knows, there are no real winners at awkward Thanksgiving dinners. Yep. Debate is more about the audience's mind than your opponent's. Optics matter. By that measure, Marr and Harris probably got the better of the debate. Pundits opposed to Marr on most everything declared him the victor. But you gotta ask, for a liberal, is it really a win if you end up holding similar opinions about religion and terrorism to the team at Fox News? <laughs> One thing seems somewhat clear. Media narratives about Islam are dangerously vulnerable to manipulation by sophistry. This week, national outlets continued to plaster our eyeballs with images of masked Muslims about to behead kneeling Americans. You had to look harder to find stories about the other big news featuring Muslims this week. The youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner in history, a 17-year-old Muslim activist named Malala Yousafzai. She is a Pakistani woman who has been working to improve education for girls since she was 11. Two years ago, at 15, Muslim extremists shot her in the face. She survived went back to work, and has built an enormously well-deserved following around the Muslim and non-Muslim world since then. All this unfolded with the U.S. well into its second month of yet another military conflict in the Muslim world to stop the advance of ISIS. For most of us this week, Islam in the news meant one or more of the following things. Masked barbarians with kneeling victims. An unimaginably courageous teenager a movie star and a comedian yelling at each other, and American bombs being guided with eerie, high-def precision into buildings full of Muslims. With so many competing narratives, how we choose to talk about this stuff really matters. Rhetoric has consequences. Even if that one guy from Goodwill Hunting and Argo can't quite articulate why. <laughs> Thank you.
The Paper Machete is produced by me, Christopher Pyatt. Our managing editor is Kim Belware. Our sound engineer is Brian Heath. Our podcast is produced by WBEZ. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit us online at thepapermachete.com. Or you can catch us live every Saturday afternoon at the Green Mill in Chicago, home of the famous Uptown Poetry Slam. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 